Welcome to Straight Talk with Wine Spectator, a podcast from the world's most widely read wine magazine. On Straight Talk, we're bringing the pages of Wine Spectator to life, from the latest vintages of the world's best wines to in-depth interviews with the world's best winemakers. We'll also be answering your questions, covering the latest wine industry news, and much more. There are iconic brands in this world we all know. I would love that one day Camus can become an iconic brand. I think you've already achieved that. Well, thank you, but I, I don't feel that way yet. There's nothing worth it for us to put out a wine without, okay, my first name and my last name <laughs> right. on it, and then have it be, you know, just a flawed wine. Just This is just not something that we do. We built decades of building our integrity and our reputation. It just wouldn't make any sense to throw it away for a single vintage. I'm James Molesworth, Senior Editor and Special Projects Director for Wine Spectator, and in this episode of Straight Talk, we're highlighting Wine Spectator's November 15th, 2023 issue. It's another big one, as our fall issues always are. It's got my annual California Cabernet Report, more on that later with winemaker Maya Dalaval. And the cover story is an exclusive sit-down interview with Chuck Wagner of Camus Vineyards and our very own Wine Spectator editor and publisher Marvin R. Shankin. We've got the world premiere release of the tapes of that interview coming up right here on Straight Talk with Wine Spectator. I'm recording this episode entirely from Wine Spectator's Napa office this time, but as always, our podcast director is warily observing from New York. Hey, Rob, how you doing? Hey, James. Happy harvest season. The last time we spoke earlier this week, you had been out in the vineyards at like 5 a.m., maybe operating a sorting table. What's been going on out there? Tell us what your uh, your harvest mornings are like. They don't let me operate anything out here, Rob. They just let me stand around and observe. But there's been a lot of coffee for these early mornings because they do their picking in the, in the wee hours when it's still quite cool and dark out. And then they get that fruit trucked over to wherever it's going to go, whichever winery is going to process it. And yeah, I've been standing around the, the sorting lines for a couple of different things, uh, picking through mog, as they call it, material other than grape, which uh, results in sticky hands and a lot of fun. But it's, it's nice to just be part of the process and see what people are doing up close as the fruit comes in. Are you going to be one of those ones with the purple fingers at the wine experience in a couple weeks? Uh, I don't know if I'm going to get that stained. Uh, I am pretty religious about washing my hands off because otherwise my phone gets extra sticky. But it, it's uh, it's definitely a, a messy process in the beginning. But it's amazing to see how fast they move through this fruit, both from picking in the vineyards and then sorting at the wineries. Uh, keep your hands away from that mic, will you? <laughs> okay. I, I know how much you love talking about Napa Cabernet, and we're going to let you do a lot of that today. But we've got an absolute legend of the California wine industry on the podcast today. Well, we've got two of them in one segment, actually. But this is your beat. Why don't you set it up for us? Well, our fearless editor and publisher, Marvin R. Shankin, has a 50-year-plus career in the wine industry. And along the way, he's made some friends, and one of those is Chuck Wagner. So that relationship is, uh, is a long one. It goes way back to when Chuck and his parents started Camus. And, of course, Camus is the pretty fascinating family business that it is today, producing about 200,000 cases a year of Cabernet that all gets drunk heartily by a lot of American wine consumers. So it, it's an interesting chat between Marvin and, and Chuck as they go back and talk about things from the beginning and up to today with uh, Chuck and his children and, and how the family business is moving into the next generation. Chuck, good morning. Good morning. Let's start at the beginning. It's 1971, 1972. You're 19 years old. And your dad comes along and says, um, I want to start a winery, but only if you want to be involved. If you don't want to be involved, I'm going to sell the property. And as the rumor goes, I'm moving to Australia. I don't know if that's true or not. 
Tell me what really went on at that moment. In in those days, you know, parents didn't really speak to children, right? We were just raised in the house and it was, you know, you just were raised. And so when my mom and dad uh, sat me down at the age of 19 for a talk in the kitchen at the table, it was completely out of character. And with that, I was a little concerned about what was going to be said. And my father did say, um, your mother and I would like to start a small commercial winery, if you'll join us. And if you don't, we're going to sell the property and move to Australia. So I instantly said yes. And I went to work in November of 1971, pruning vines with my dad. And uh, we pruned for four months to prune our 55 acres of grapes at the time. Got to know my father as a co-worker, more so than just a father figure. So we prepared for the next year, 1972. We built, uh, we did a lot of the building ourselves. Built a 3,000 square foot utility building, which we call the winery. Hung the sign up that stated Camus Vineyards. Camus was a name my dad chose. It's a Spanish land grant name, so it's historical in Napa Valley. About the, the middle point, about 11,000 acres around the Rutherford area, spanning from Rutherford to Yachtville, from Hilltop to Hilltop, was owned by George Yaunt, and uh, it was called Rancho Camus. Uh, so that's the origin of the name. Uh, we're a very small part of that, of course, uh, in Rutherford. So we went to work, and uh, heck, I mean, we just worked hard and made wine our first year, not much, 250 cases of Cabernet. And my father put a price tag on it of $4.50 a bottle. Uh, the wine didn't sell very quickly because no one knew about us, and how would they? At what point did you realize that you had a potential success on your hands with a great future. We struggled for years. I, I often said that um, we felt as though we didn't have a successful business until we were into it for 18 years. 1990 was a great year worldwide. And it really was the first year that, in my mind, where you could compete with anybody that produced wine in the world. We were given a stage. We were producing wine that had stylistically had some prominence and some character that people liked, especially compared to other wines of regions of the world. So 1990 was felt like that was a very important year for that reason. Felt like we we're, yeah, we had a chance to make a, a go of it and that we could get better and and drive the flag up the, the pole for Camus. But are you saying it was driven by a great vintage in which you made a great wine or was it a culmination of the 18 years of developing the brand, developing the vineyards, perfecting the quality of the wine, etc.? You well, seem to be giving a lot of credit to the vintage. Yeah. You know, Marvin, there was a time when I was not afraid to put our wine on any table against any wine. And I think that's about 1990 is when that occurred. You know, it could not only grace any table, but it could be paired along any important wine of the world. I want you to know how important that, that felt to me at that moment. At least I believe that that was the case, and I still believe that today. I want to say this. I think that stylistically, we're wine consumers. I love wine, yeah. and um, I, I don't get these hard, stiff, tart wines. That yeah. you, I like wines that are supple, round, and rich. Yeah. And, and I think that probably that style uh, rings a bell with a lot of consumers. 
the wine industry is so complicated and fragmented. Do you feel competition or pressure from within, meaning other Napa Valley Cabernets, as example, or from without, from the great wines of Bordeaux and Burgundy, and even the great Tuscan wines, and wines from around the world. Does that enter into your concern about oversaturation and competition in the wine world? So I'll answer this uh, in another way. I think that we've arrived at a spot stylistically that is unique in the world, I believe. I think Camus Cabernet tastes different than other Napa Valley Cabernets. That distinction is due to how we grow grapes and make the wine. I think that uh, in the world of wines, I love grape Barolo and all, all great wines. Well, they all taste different. We taste different. And I think our style is, is our own, and it's uh, part of our success. What is your vision for your family business when you're gone? Well, what I'd really like, uh, Marvin, is is that um, what we're creating here is a brand, Camus, and I would love that to, to live on. I think uh, there are iconic brands in this world, we all know. I would love that one day Camus can become an iconic brand. I think you've already achieved that. Well, thank you, but I, I don't feel that way yet. <laughs> Last question. Yes. How do you want to be remembered? Honest, hardworking, try to do the right thing, uh, support of others, all-American, American farm boy. In a business, it isn't always thought to be so real. It's so much often about egos and pricing and that sort of thing. Listen, we, we're, we're taking agricultural uh, product. We're making wine. Well, I think we should count our blessings on that. Well, I want to end it by saying that uh, we've known each other for nearly a half a century. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. I have tremendous respect and admiration for you. I find you to be incredibly humble and down to earth. Thank you for coming. Marvin, thank you very much. It's a pretty uh, interesting clip from that interview. You know, Chuck seems to get a little emotional there, and I think that's probably the power of the rapport between uh, Marvin and Chuck. And again, you know, it's a fascinating interview. And that was just seven minutes of it. The full interview ran for over an hour, and you can read the whole thing in Wine Spectator's November 15th, 2023 issue. Our website subscribers can find it as well at winespectator.com. And we've also got some video highlights running online as well. So don't forget to check those out on our website or on our YouTube channel. James, uh, would you like to keep talking about Napa Cabernet? Yeah, let's uh, see if I can segue over to Maya Dallaval, who joined us here in the studio for an interview. This is in conjunction with my Cabernet report in the November 15th issue, which focuses on the 2020 vintage. And as I've been telling people, not a lot of wine from 2020 because of the wildfires, but there is a lot to talk about. And uh, Maya Dallaval is one of the people that did release some wines from 2020, and she's quite passionate about it. 
But she's also got a great story, as does this winery in general. It was started in the early 1980s by the uh, wife and husband team of Nyoka Dalaval and Gustav. And Gustav passed when uh, Maya was young. So this was an operation that uh, Nyoka basically took the reins of. At one point, she had to replant the entire vineyard. Uh, Maya was sort of uh, sent off to to find her way in the world. She wasn't even interested in wine in the beginning and then eventually came around to it. She's got a, a pretty impressive resume of stops along the way before returning home to take over the winemaking here and continue this family uh, operation. She's the second generation. So kind of mirroring the Camus thing, but on a much smaller scale because they only do a few thousand cases. And I think this was a, a really interesting interview. And we're going to listen to some segments now with Maya Dallaval. Maya Dallaval, welcome to Straight Talk with Wine Spectator. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for coming in in the middle of harvest. <laughs> but I wanted to go back to the early days of Maya Dallaval. You were appointed winemaker back in 2017 at your family estate, which to most people might be a fait accompli because your last name is on the label and your first name is on the other label. But you were actually not into wine in your early days. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, growing up on the estate and then going off to college to do something else. Yeah. Growing up, I had zero desire to be part of the wine industry. I loved, you know, where I grew up, but I thought there was something, you know, different out there for me that it couldn't possibly be being a winemaker, joining the family business. I thought I really needed to forge my own pathway. Mm -hmm. Um, So I left and it really took me leaving the Napa Valley to realize how much I loved Napa. Was there pressure on you to, to join the family state at any point, or, or was this more just you needed to kind of spread your wings somewhere else and then come back to it? Uh, no pressure at all. Yeah. I think it was almost reverse psychology from my mother <laughs> okay. because she told me, you know, this is your one life and you should do what you love. And if it's not being in the wine industry, that's fine. You know, I'm really happy to continue running the business. And when, you know, when I retire, I'll, you know, just sell it. And I think that's like, at that point I started thinking, well, I'm only child. And I, not that it's great to be attached to physical things, but I felt very attached to our vineyard and winery and what my parents had started. So then it kind of planted the seed inside of me that said, okay, well, actually, how do I carry this on? So it was very smart on my mom's behalf. <laughs> and then your your father passes when you're young. He passes in 95. Mm-hmm. And then the vineyard also runs into issues in the late 1990s. And your yeah. mother took the very difficult decision to replant the entire estate. She and, did. And she took over, the, obviously, the running of the estate after your father passed. And it wasn't really her ball of wax to begin with. It was his the, ball Yeah, of wax. I think that, you know, she was... They just fell into the wine industry, I would say, by, you know, falling in love with that property and there happened to be vineyards there and then deciding that they were going to make wine. It was my dad's crazy idea. And then my mom went along with it. But then she really developed a deep passion and love for growing grapes and making wine and, and really felt embraced by the community. And after my dad passed away, I think a lot of people thought or speculated that she would sell and go back to Japan. We actually have no extended family in the United States, with my father being from Italy and my mom being from Japan. So people just assumed that she would sell it and leave. But she really, you know, to her credit, took it to the next level and made those difficult decisions of 
replanting an entire vineyard. You know, we f didn't make two vintages of Maya because we didn't feel the quality was there. Then we made like 400 cases of wine in the 2004 vintage. So it was a lot of sacrifices and a lot of challenges to overcome. But she, you know, really took the vision of what my parents, what she started with my father and really took it to the next level and, you know, not without cutting any corners. And that is a huge reason why, you know, we have the reputation that we have today. Over the years, as I've gotten to know you, I would consider you a, a soft-spoken but very serious person. <laughs> um, but I, I also see the fire in your eye, bad pun here, for the 2020 vintage, which was the wildfire right, mark is vintage. Is that a pun in terms of Yeah. <laughs> Um, you're very passionate about the fact that you made a wine. There are two sides to 2020. There are the mm -hmm. people who, who didn't make a wine. That's a large pool of people. Right. And then there are the ones that forged ahead and, and decided to get something into bottle. Tell us about that process and why you felt so strongly about it. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, 2020 yeah. was not a vintage I would ever like to repeat for multiple reasons. You know, let's not forget about COVID. That, mm -hmm was the first, you know, slap in the face and getting, you know, we, we have our own crew and we farm everything ourselves in house. So together with our vineyard manager, Edgar, and I, you know, spent the season really keeping our team safe, distance, trying, you know, trying to learn about COVID and, you know, to everyone's credit, they all showed up every single day and, you know, never questioned, you know, is this safe? Should we be doing this? And, you know, I owe everything to them for that faith in us and trusting us to make the right decisions for our team. Um, and then, of course, you know, come the fall, then mid-August, the LNU complex fire started and we had not picked anything at that point. It was very early on. The vintage was shaping out to be really beautiful. It was, you know, akin to what I would say would be like a 2013, you know, low yields, drought year, very concentrated, nice tannin and the fruit that was showing at that time. But of course, then you say, okay, no, now what? So we started testing, testing berries, testing, you know, micro fermentation, sending out to labs, local labs until the local labs were backed up. And then we went to the international labs and we were very thorough. We tested previous vintages because the truth of the matter is that at that time and still to this day, there's still a lot that's not well understood about smoke tainted. It's incredibly nuanced. I'm not a researcher. I'm not in academia, so I can only go off of what information is available to me. And, and we feel confident in these lines and it's a labor of love and, I felt like, and my mom would agree with me because I'm never going to make a decision alone. But with my mom and our team, we felt this was the best expression of 2020 from our vineyard. So, you know, to not put it out because we are afraid mm -hmm. is, I don't know if that's a justifiable reason to do away with a wine that's yeah, we were very proud of. Right. And there have been times in the past where Dalabal did not release the Absolutely. wine. So th th that option was on the table. Right. Because what, what sense would it make for us to put out a wine that we've had doubts about? If we had any single doubt about this vintage, we would just pull it. It would be it, because it's, there's nothing worth it for us to 
put out a wine without okay my first name and my last name <laughs> on it and then have it be you know just a flawed wine just it's just not something that we do we built decades of building our integrity and our reputation it just wouldn't make any sense to throw it away for a single vintage. Well, the wines are successful. They're in the Cabernet Report that's out now. You know, they are among the handful of successful 2020s, in part because not only was it such a difficult year with the wildfires and so many people didn't make wine, but it was, mm-hmm. it was not the easiest growing season. No. I mean, it was. So, um, I, again, I applaud you for, for sticking with your your beliefs there and, and putting out two very high-quality wines. Thank you. Maya Dallaval from A Young Girl Riding Horses, <laughs> wondering why all these vineyards were in her way. To making wine at Dallaval Vineyards, we thank you for coming in and talking with us on Straight Talk today. Thanks so much for having me. That was a super interview, James. Uh, thank you to both you and Maya for that. Yeah, thanks, Rob. I had fun with that. And as we move along in the show here, I think it is time for a visit from the doctor. Oh, shoot. I'm late. Paging Dr. Vinny. Paging Dr. Vinny. Code Rouge in the podcast studio. Hello again, listeners, and welcome back to Dr. Vinny's office, where the glass and the mailbag are always half full. Hello, Dr. Vinny. How are you today? Um, Hello, Rob. I'm great. How are you? I'm great, and I'm so happy to see you. And I have a question for you today that comes from the other side of the world. Oh, okay. But we get it a lot. Hit me. Dear Dr. Vinny, is it true that wine gets better as it gets older? Saksham. In Delhi, India. Oh, that's a great name. Um, uh, no, it doesn't. Next question. <laughs> Why? Why not? <laughs> I feel like that's all we've ever been taught. Should I not be aging like a fine wine? <laughs> I'm sorry, Rob. I didn't mean to throw you. Um, so, yes, of course, there's a more complex answer here. Some wines do evolve with time. And in the best case scenario, that evolution can be fascinating and delicious. But... I just want to make clear that it's not like you can put a bad wine into a cellar and it comes out tasting delicious. That's that's not how aging works. One of my favorite mantras is a wine cellar is not a wine hospital. So we're not cellaring a wine to fix it, so to speak. Are we not in a wine hospital? Not in a wine hospital. Although I would like to be a doctor at a wine hospital. I think I think that'd be a fun job. So, you know, remember my soapbox from earlier when I was talking about how I always hesitate about talking about older wines, because I think one of the most important things to remember is that you might not like older wines. I mean, absolutely, some of the best wines in the world evolve and change, but I wouldn't recommend aging wines unless you've had experience with aged wines and you know that you like them. Because otherwise, it's going to be a big disappointment. And then my other soapboxes don't age wines unless you really have the cellar conditions for it. And not everyone can afford that. Not everyone has the space or time to invest in that. I do recommend that at some point, if you're spending a bigger and bigger percentage of your salary on wine, that you should start looking at how you're storing it. And the most ideal situation is to have a scenario where the wines are in a consistent, cool temperature of about 55 degrees Fahrenheit, out of the way of light, vibration, and other disturbances. So, you know, when I first started out drinking wine in medical school, (laughs) wine medical school, uh, that was a a dark corner of the closet for me, and then it evolves into something more temperature controlled. So don't age wine unless you like aged wine, and don't age wine unless you have the conditions for it. 
Well, I don't have any of those conditions in my home. Am I out of luck? No, Rob, absolutely not. The great news is that these days, wines are made to be enjoyed when they're released, even the ones that have the stuffing to age. I mean, I think some of the the old chestnut of a wine needs time to age comes back from the time when A, wine wasn't in bottles, it was sold in casks. B, it was traveled across oceans to get from the producer to the merchant who would sell it to the consumer. And, you know, really, you know, with industrialization and with, you know, the advent of making travel easier and bottling, I mean, the invention of wine bottles really changed a lot of what happens. So yeah, it doesn't have to travel across an ocean. It doesn't need months or years to get to you. And it's going to taste good upon release. Thanks, Dr. Vinny. And I don't care what you say. I think we're both getting better with age. Oh, Rob, I think we are too. Thanks for coming in. For more of Dr. Vinny's free advice, check out her weekly Ask Dr. Vinny Q&A on our website or email your questions straight to us at straighttalk at winespectator.com. Thanks, Dr. Vinny. Thanks, Rob. James, I hesitate to give you the Cabernet floor again, but uh, Dr. Venny was talking about aging wine in general, and I know that you have some pretty valuable advice for aging or not aging Napa Cabernets. Uh, what's the deal? Mm-hmm. Are, you, are you high or low on aging Napa cabs? I'm, I'm a little bit of both because most of the Cabernets that come out of Napa are really delicious in their youth, and so you can't deny that. And I think in their first 10 years is, is when you want to hit the majority of them. There are wines, though, that will go the 10, 20, 30, even 40 years in the cellar, and they tend to come from the mountain areas. Uh, Those be like Howell Mountain and Spring Mountain and Mount Veeder. And the difference between the mountain fruit and the valley floor fruit is is significant. The valley floor fruit is a sort of plusher, richer, rounder, more polished tannin structure, along with the copious upfront fruit. And again, some of those can age for a while, particularly from a vineyard like Tokalon or something like that. But when you go up into the mountains, this is a different animal altogether. Much more acidity and much more of a rigid tannin structure along with that fruit. And these are wines that need time in the beginning just to sort of unwind fully. So my advice is drink your Valley Floor Cabernets first over the first 10 years and then switch to your Mountain Cabernets after they've had a good 8 to 10 years in bottle. Of course, there's always exceptions to these rules, but generally the Mountain Cabs are the ones that you really want to tuck away for a bit. Well, I'll tell you one thing that never gets old, and that's listening to you talk about Napa Cabernet. Aw, thanks, Rob. (laughs) That's it for this episode of Wine Spectator Straight Talk Podcast. If you like the show, give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening so that more awesome people like you can find us. And if you know a Camus lover or anyone who's into wine, tell them about the new episode. Coming up in just a few short days, we've got Wine Spectator's New York Wine Experience. I know I'm going to have my hands full. We've got a Lynch Bosch vertical I'll be hosting, as well as a panel with uh, some Sonoma Coast Pinot Noir producers and a full slate of stuff during the day, plus the evening walk around tastings. That's right. And we'll be bringing our listeners all the highlights from the world's most spectacular wine event right here on the next episode of Straight Talk with Wine Spectator. But until then, our listeners can email us their questions or just drop us a line at straighttalk at winespectator.com. And don't forget to follow Wine Spectator on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and X. James, I will see you very soon at the New York Wine Experience. But before that, give us that sweet sneak peek wine pick. Yeah, I've got the sneak peek right here, Rob. It's a Cabernet, of course, because we're talking Cabernet this issue. It's the BV Vineyards Cabernet Sauvignon Rutherford Reserve 2020. 
Again, one of the successful wines from this difficult vintage, uh, Trevor Durling, who's the winemaker there for the last few years now, is really doing a nice job. This has got that kind of classic Rutherford warmed cassis, savory cedar uh, aspect to it. 80 bucks, and there's uh, 3,700 cases made. Again, the BB Rutherford Reserve 2020 Cabernet from BB. You'll be able to find it, and it's a successful 2020 that you should check out. Is that not the follow-up to last year's value of the year? You are good at your job, Rob. Uh, that is our value pick from last year from BB, but it was the Napa bottling that was the value pick and the 2019 vintage, uh, a really well-priced and big case productions on that, which make it super easy to find. But as I said, winemaker Trevor Derling has BV really at the top of their game again, uh, both value bottlings, mid-priced range, and their top bottling, uh, Georges de Latour as well. This is a Cabernet house that's uh, back in the game. Uh-huh. Well, it's been a full-on Cabernet episode here, number 15 in our podcast series. Rob, I think you've given me the floor long enough, so it's time to sign off. We'll see you all back here for episode 16 in a couple of weeks. And until then, remember to share when you drink the good stuff.